Dudes the Laz Nuts. This special episode of the Dickheads Podcast is brought to you by the coronavirus, which is why we are not all in the same room. We are social distancing because we kind of have to. This is the cursed episode of the Dickheads Podcast, the very last of the 60s Hugo series. Um, and we did not save the best for last. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Uh, for whatever reason, we meant to record this episode three months ago, and first we had a member of our team get sick, and then once we were all healthy, we wanted to record this a couple weeks ago, and then um, a pandemic broke out. So here we are by video uh, talking about Roger Zelazny's two uh, Hugo Award-winning books from the 60s, which unfortunately... For Mark Conlon, he volunteered to read and do for the podcast with me. Um, and it should be noted that we both read these books last year. Well, we're recording this in March. So joining me tonight is Mark Conlon. Uh, Mark, can you remind our listeners who you are? You're a returning guest. I am Mark Gabrish Conlon. Uh, I'm a... Uh... Uh, strong reader of science fiction and uh, crime novels and uh, just uh, posted on my movie blog a whole bunch of articles about Lifetime movies, uh, which I watched <laughs> last night. All right. Uh, the two books we're talking about tonight are This Immortal, uh, which I do still have a copy of, uh, that was originally titled Call Me Conrad. And Call Me Conrad. And, yeah. Three dots and, and Call, Call Me Conrad. Me. Um, and uh, this one shared the Hugo Award with Dune, which is mind-blowing. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. And uh, Lord of Light, which uh, won two years later. And what I think we're going to do is first talk about the Hugo field for those two years, and then we'll come back to the books. Because um, it is um, most fascinating, the most fascinating thing about this um, this immortal, I'm sorry, I'm going to wait for the dog to stop barking. Okay, so what's fascinating about this immortal is that it, it is a co-winning uh, Hugo Award winning novel. Uh, there have only been a few ties in the history of the Hugos, and this is one of them. And it tied with Dune. Um, also nominated that year was Squares of the City by John Bruner, the uh, first serialization of Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which would go on to win the next year because it was published slightly differently in a hardcover edition. And um, e. e. Smith's um, Skylark Dubusk. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Whatever. Anyways, it was a strong field that year. John Bruner's book, uh, we talked about the field um, in our Dune episode. The fact that any book challenged Dune that year is incredible, uh, considering the history that that book had and, and how much it changed the game in science fiction. And I don't think any of us who have read This Immortal thinks, in hindsight, looking back on it, that This Immortal uh, deserves to be even in the same category as Dune. I don't know. How do you feel, Mark? 
about, about that. that. But in the 1984, the Album of the Year Grammy Award real show, Lionel Richie for All Night Long, beating out Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and Princess Purple Rain. So that seemed part of like, at least Doom got a co-win with it. <laughs> That's true. It's like Jeff Rotol winning um, uh, the best, the first best heavy metal Grammy over Metallica. Um, it's definitely in, in, in that in that same vein. Um, yeah. So that was 1966, and it was at Tricon in Cleveland, and the Toastmaster was Isaac Asimov. So Isaac Asimov had to figure out how to share the stage between Zelazny and Herbert um, when they accepted the awards. I don't know if they were both there. But Lord of Light went on to win two years later at the Baycon in Oakland, uh, September 2nd, 1968. And the Toastmaster that year was Robert Silverberg when Lord of Light won. Lord of Light was nominated against the Einstein Intersection by Samuel Delaney. Um, just by Piers Anthony. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure I'm not. Uh, the Butterfly Kid by Chester Anderson and Thorns by Robert Silverberg, who was the Toastmaster that year. Now, in 1968, when Lord of Light won, Delaney took home the Nebula for the, the Einsteiners intersection. And that book, uh, kind of on the surface, is like a space opera. But um, being that Samuel Delaney was uh, African-American and the first, like, out African-American science fiction writer, that book, The Einstein Intersection, is very much about how people who are others or different in communities kind of re relate to the dominant, like, cultural ideology. And that's kind of what The Einstein Intersection was about. And... So you've got that kind of theme going against the super religious theme with uh, Lord of Light. And Thorns, um, the Robert Silverberg book, was actually kind of so sort of similar to, um, well, it was like a psychic vampire thing. It was about like this guy who was like a media mogul. And it kind of reminded me of Revelations by um, Barry Maltzberg. But a little bit more fantastic and space opera-ish because it has, like, this kind of guy who's running this kind of reality show and being a psychic vampire. So Thorns is an interesting book by Robert Silverberg, uh, who is the Toastmaster. But in the end, Lord of Light, uh, Roger Zelazny won that year. Um, I don't know. Have you read any of the books in this field, uh, Mark? No, though I've read some of Delaney's works and um, uh, would be impressed even if he weren't uh, blackhead gay. Yeah, yeah, he is a great author. Um, and uh, certainly I uh, would like to cover Delaney at some point on this podcast um, in an adjacent episode. Um, I still want uh, a special yeah. edition for the pandemic well, he... and do, and do um, Walter Miller's Dark Benediction. Yeah, I know you want to do that for for the coronavirus, uh, mm. which sounds interesting. But um, but yeah, Delaney uh, is very interesting. Uh, he and uh, Dick did not have a super great relationship back in the day. Um, in fact, Dick was highly critical of Dahlgren, which is considered Delaney's masterpiece. 
and uh, he was not person. a fan. Name one person Dick had a good relationship with. Well, actually, he did have quite a few good relationships, and then there were a lot of people like the Tim Powers, um, K, uh, KJ Jetter, and a lot of the Bay Area writers he did have a good relationship with, but definitely not Delaney because um, he was super critical of his work. But, you know. Anyways, Lord of Light won in 1968. So, let's talk about Roger Zelazny, the author. Um, he was born in 1937, and he won the Nebula three times, uh, but he was nominated for the Nebula 14 times. Uh, he won the Hugo Award six times, but only twice for novels, these two times. And uh, between 1962 and 1969, he worked for uh, the U.S. Social Security Administration in Cleveland, Ohio. And then he moved to Baltimore, and he was working for the government during the day and writing at night. And uh, 1965 was his first novel-length work. So he had one full-length novel before he wrote This Immortal, I believe. Um, and But This Immortal is, uh, should be interesting for Dickheads listeners because it was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in October and November 1965. And then it went on to be published by Ace Books, which means that it was edited uh, in magazine format by Tony Boucher, who was, uh, shout out to Tony, who was uh, one of Philip K. Dick's uh, mentors and first serious editor and member of the writers group he was a part of in Oakland. So in 1966, the paperback edition was edited by Don Wolheim which means the two most important editors to Philip K. Dick worked on both the magazine and the paperback edition of This Immortal. So uh, I think our listeners would be interested in, in, in that history. Um, so there were a lot of cuts made to the magazine edition. So uh, Boucher tried to cut it down quite a bit to, to get it into the serialized edition. And... Um, Boucher went with Zelazny's preferred title, which was And Call Me Conrad. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why he thought that was a great title. But uh, that was his title. And it was Don Wolheim, who uh, never uh, was one to uh, let a bad title go, (laughs) uh, and retitled it This Immortal. Uh, and I thank Don for sticking to his guns on that because that's a much better title. I disagree. Uh, yeah. And, I thought uh, I thought And Call Me Conrad was a much better title, but personally. Okay, tell me why you thought that was a better title. Uh, because it's a bit more ironic and a bit more mysterious, and it's you know sort of um, invites you to read instead of um, uh, basically summarizing the the story uh thinks it works much better if you have to uh realize as you go through the book that the main character is immortal rather than being told that on the cover page okay okay that's a that's a strong argument i can i i I hear you um i don't really know what's super inviting about ang conrad and call me conrad but um it certainly doesn't sell the idea of science fiction and i think that was probably what 
and marketing was what Don Wilhelm was probably thinking about. But I hear you. Um, so Zelazny did say many interviews that that was his preferred title. The abridgment of the novel was 47,000 words for the magazine. And it was, once it was restored, it was 58,000 words. Um, and it wasn't until a book club edition that was published in the 80s that Zelazny got to put some of the full uh, cuts, get back some of the full like text that he wanted to have in it. Um, I don't know. I read the Bain Books version, which is post-book club. So my version, I think, is the preferred um, author edition, although... Mine's only- a new one that I bought on Amazon, so... Um- uh, I don't. I would assume that's preferred edition. Okay. But um, I think one of the last one of the cuts just came down to ten paragraphs between one of the editions. But uh, apparently, it was very important for Zelazny to get those ten paragraphs back. Zelazny said, and I quote: "I wanted to leave it open to several interpretations. Well, at least two. I wanted to sort of combine fantasy and science fiction." Either Conrad is a mutant or he is a great god pan. The book can be read either way. Um, so what did you think of, of the story of um, this immortal slash Con- and call me Conrad, Mark? What did, how did you, how did this story, how did you take it? Well, I think part of the problem was I just didn't think Conrad was that interesting a character. And for... A writer with Zelazny's reputation, it really came across, really came alive much more in the action scenes than anything else, even though, you know, it's like, okay, we're in a world where everything is mutated, so you've got all these, you know, bizarre animals popping up that the hero has to fight. But the action scenes were the parts of the book that really came alive for me, and I joked that it was like someone got Edgar Rice Burroughs' library card, steered him to the section on... Greek history and ancient Greek history and mythology, and said, "Okay, do something with this." But the, right. the fight can be very, very Burroughs-esque, but they're also the best parts of the book. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it, it's interesting for me because I I thought that there was hints and glimmers of really interesting ideas, and it really did help me to to think as far as my overall judgment of Zelazny that this was early in his career and only his second novel. I think that there was a lot of really, really interesting ideas that were kind of on the sidelines of this novel. But at the most part, I found it to be a lot of really good ideas that were kind of ramshackly thrown together. Mm -hmm. Um, me personally, uh, but I mean, there was there was moments that I did that I did find really really interesting. And I know you're saying the action scenes were some of your favorite parts. Um, was there any of the characterization of? I mean, you said that you didn't think Conrad is a very interesting character, right? Right. I didn't think he was very interesting or uh, very sympathetic. Uh, Zelazny, I guess, wanted to create this aura of mystery around him. But you know, I certainly didn't think he was a god, just uh, an ordinary human who had been born with the capability to live forever and doing it, you know, sort of like a serious version of the Carl Reiner Mel Brooks 2,000-year-old man. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I liked some of the post-apocalyptic setting of it, but that kind of fell away a little bit too. Um, the more you got into the story, it's like it wasn't so important that it was just kind of like that it was like a fantasy land, but it wasn't so... I don't think he played into the fact that uh, that we're in a post-human, you know, or, or human-dominated Earth, right? And we have the Vegans, which I know, I know, we'll get to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. The fact that the aliens were from Vega, and so throughout the book, it was very hard for me to read all this stuff that looked like it was talking about vegans, um, <laughs> you know. And then there are some really amusing parts of the book for me for that, but. Um, you know, this, this conceit that the book has that Conrad is kind of giving this, or that there's this tour being given of the history of earth, um, to these alien visitors, I think was kind of underutilized in the book. Like it's, it's huge and it's there, but I think it could have been neater things could have been done with it. I don't know. That's that's one to me one of the weaknesses. I think you're seeing a lot of signs of a young author here that's in his second novel in that regard. Yeah. And in no way, in no way does this book hold anything close to a candle with Dune. It is mind-boggling that Dune, for all of its faults or or pluses and minuses, ups and downs, Dune is incredible compared to this. And I can't even believe that they're even being talked about in the same sentence. I mean, well, Frank Herbert was writing an epic, and he had the chops to create that whole world and to write an epic-length novel. Whereas Zelazny was kind of stretching this out. In fact, I wondered uh, whether I I would have liked the shorter version better. Well, that is one thing, too, is that I think Herbert, even though he was, Dune was serialized uh, eventually in in the same magazine, too, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I believe. Um, but even though Herbert was doing that, he did not write the he did not write Dune for that purpose. He originally wrote it to be an epic, huge novel, and he just had to settle for publishing it that way, whereas I think Zelazny was probably writing with the market in mind uh, because he was already writing for all the, the magazines at that time. So, And also Herbert had had quite a few more novels published by then than Zelazny had. Uh, but I don't have a ton to say about... I know that there's some interesting things that I read on Wikipedia about... Um, you know, there's clues that Conrad may be the great god Pan, that Conrad's name uh, recalls one of Pan's names, and there's all kinds of, like, little, like, Easter eggs and things and that for the great god Pan. Um, I'm not really well-versed in Pan stuff, so I didn't catch that until I was doing research. Uh, and I do think that Zelazny has a lot of really great research and mythological things that he puts into his work. That definitely goes over my head. So, um, but that doesn't make it a better experience for me. I don't know how you feel about that stuff. And I your... was kind of ransacking my uh, high school era knowledge of the ancient Greek history and mythology, trying to remember. Okay, what's this? What's that? What's the other? And when Lord of Light, I read Lord of Light, I was really at sea with 
you know, I felt that in order to appreciate that book, I'd really need to know a lot more about the Hindu pantheon than I ever have or really wanted to know. Right. Well, let's talk about Lord of Light. Let's get there. <laughs> uh, I don't think we need to um, make this the longest episode in the history of dickheads, uh, considering uh, the books we're covering. But Lord of Light is um, the last of the 60s Hugo winners for me to read. And um, I read this uh, just at the very end of the year, just so I could get it in before New Year's Day, so I could read all the 60s within the year, 60s Hugo winners. Um, uh, originally, Lord of Light, two, two chapters were published as a novelette in fantasy and science fiction. So once again... Uh, Tony Boucher was involved in the uh, editing of the early parts of the, these books. Uh, it appears that Zelazny published quite a bit with uh, Boucher and crew at uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction. And the two novelettes were called Dawn, which was published in April 1967, and Death of the Executioner, which was published in June 67. But they were not uh, serialized or connected. They were kind of like on their own and then a year within the year he sold it to Doubleday as a hardcover the whole thing and Lord of Light uh, the way the plot is described on Wikipedia is Lord of Light is set on a planet colonized by some of the remnants of the vanished Yurath or Earth the crew and colonists from the spaceship Star of India found themselves on a strange planet surrounded by hostile indigenous races and had to carve a place for themselves or perish. To increase their chances of survival, the crew has used chemical treatments, biofeedback, and electronics to mutate their minds and create enhanced self-images or aspects that strengthen their bodies and intensify their wills to extend their power uh, of their desires into attributes, blah, blah, blah. I already know more about this story from reading that than I did the whole book. Uh, <laughs> because I can tell you that when I read Lord of Light, there was all kinds of neat sentences that didn't mean shit to me. Um, the book was, I felt, like you said, Mark, I felt out to sea without... Uh, a life preserver in most of this book um, because so much of it depends on your knowledge of the Hindu like mythology, which I don't know a lot about. And here's the thing about Lord of Light. I think it is probably a really brilliant book, uh, but I don't know <laughs> because I don't understand the level that Zelazny is working on. And for me, that made it an incredibly boring and book to read and a slog because most of the time it could have taken place in ancient India and I wouldn't have known the difference because um, all this stuff about them crashing on another planet and stuff like that, I, I didn't even get that out of reading it. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your experience of reading Lord of Light. Mark, was it better than mine? Well, first off, I wrote this down on my notes. Really annoying is Zelazny's habit maddening of his sentences backwards writing. Seems he to think if his book this way he constructs, more spiritual and scriptural will it sound. <laughs> and... Oh yeah, there was a lot of that. 
<laughs> and then you're just en- you just end up skipping whole parts because you're just like, what on earth is going on? Yeah, there was one uh, point at uh, uh, once again I was reading an, a recent edition, so here's here's the copy I was working from, and about That's page- the same what I read. Yeah, about page fifty five, fifty six. Uh, Zelazny actually starts to explain, you know, what the world is and how it got to be that way. And, you know, all of a sudden I thought, oh, great, he's going to turn this around and, you know, treat his story from a science fictional rather than a fantasy perspective. And the book is going to come alive for me. And then he went back to uh, writing this fantasy. It did not come alive. (laughs) You know, as as you said, it was like, um, you know, are, you know, is this a book about actual Hinduism? Is this a book about a reconstruction of Hinduism? Is it a book about, um, you know, uh, the class struggle when, you know, the ruling elite literally has the power of life and death over the population of, you know, you, know, you get to be immortal, you get to die. Because um, there were some parts of it I liked, um, some aspects. Um, the um, the dismissal of Christianity, uh, um as the uh, religion of the mutant sea creatures uh, who don't emerge until the very end. Um, I liked the implied class struggle between the deists and the accelerationists of, you know, well, do we give the masses some few crumbs or do we just, you know, lord it over them completely? Um, Yeah, that was a really interesting part of the book that I was waiting for more on. Because it was like, for for little bits and pieces, you had some really interesting things where you're talking about the role of religion and advancing or not advancing a species. And that became really interesting, but it would be short bits. Just like the short bits where they actually describe the world that you're in. And it was just not enough to carry me in this book. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the potential social critic criticisms in the story is the whole idea of religion that, you know, really existing religions use the promise of immortality in some other world to persuade believers to do what the leaders of the religion tell them to. And uh, in Lord of Light, uh, the ruling elite is using the promise of actual immortality. Uh, This whole phrase, the real death, that if you don't do what we tell you, you're going to have to die the real death, the one that you're, you're just not there anymore. And uh, right. that was one of the ideas I thought he could have done a lot more with that I would have wanted to see more about. And also... Yeah, I, did, I definitely did appreciate some of those philosophical themes, but again, I, I, feel, I felt like every once in a while what would happen to me reading this book is I'd go, okay, here we go, here we go, it's about to get good, and no. <laughs> uh, it just wouldn't happen. Um, we had great ideas that were just kind of right there. Um, I definitely see why somebody would like this book if they were like way into Hinduism and stuff like that, or if they found that stuff interesting, but it didn't work for me. Um, I do have a Zelazny quote uh, about Lord of Light. And he said, on one hand, I attempted to provide some justifications for what went on in the way of the bazaar. On the other, I employed a style I associate with fantasy in the telling of the story. I wrote it that way on purpose. 
leaving some intentional ambiguity because I wanted to lie somewhat between both camps and not entirely in either. I did this because I did not see much of that stuff being written at the time that fit that description because I wanted to see whether I could do it and because I was curious to see how a book like that would be received. So he was definitely trying to experiment with the form. And I think that the voters for the Hugo that year were probably rewarding him for that kind of experimentation. Uh, however, I can tell you without even having read uh, Delaney's The Einstein Intersection, which I de definitely want to read, uh, that book sounds way better. <laughs> and uh, it won the Nebula, and I will read it at some point, and, and then I will report back to everyone that it's better than Lord of Light because I already know it is. <laughs> well, I had a similar experience with Lord of Light to yours. It was just a, a hard slog. It was a difficult book to read because it really didn't capture my interest. And if he had steered it more towards science fiction rather than fantasy, I'm sure I would have liked it a lot better. I agree. That that's what the book needed to be more science fiction and less esoteric, or at least have chapters that hook you in with the science fictional themes that give it a little bit more real world feeling, and then you can experiment more with the other parts of the narrative. I think that would have worked better. I don't know how you feel. In fact, after uh, reading this, I thought that you and I had been way way too hard on Robert Heinlein when we did the podcasts about his uh, his books that you know you know he's a way better world builder than uh, Zelazny and uh, you know for all of his preachiness for all of his weird politics Heinlein at least knew how to tell a story and knew how to keep your interest right um, I definitely would not have finished this book if if we weren't going to be sitting right here talking about it <laughs> eventually <For sure. laughs> yeah I don't, I don't think I would have finished it. I would have been like, hell no. And yet, I ran into someone who saw me reading Lord of Light and said, oh, you're reading Lord of Light. It's a great book. And he said that he told me that I wouldn't really understand it until I read the ending. And then I'd have to go back and read the whole thing over again. And uh, then it would make sense. And I thought to myself, once is enough. Thank you. Yeah. I don't need to understand it that bad. <laughs> Uh, okay, so one of the most interesting things about Lord of Light is something that had nothing to do with the actual text of the book. Uh, and that is that in 1979, it was announced that Lord of Light would be made into a $50 million motion picture. Uh, by, uh, And it was planned, uh, it was enough that they had built sets for the movie, made a location, and that the... the uh, the guy who was producing it even claimed that he was going to make a science fiction theme park in Aurora, Colorado, and they used um, designs by Jack Kirby, the famous comic book artist, mm -hmm. who was hired to do um, artwork for the set design, and it got uh, really complicated. And uh, then the set designs were used um, in a very interesting way. <laughs> for a project that was known by the CIA as the Canadian Caper. Uh, Mark, are you familiar with what I'm getting at here? Do you know this? Uh, yes, I, read the, I think I probably read the same stuff on Wikipedia that you did, that it was the basis of the movie Argo and this whole plot that uh, 
to free some of the uh, hostages being held in Iran by uh, sending a crew there uh, posing as location scouts for a science fiction movie to be filmed in Iran. Right. Which um, is way more interesting than anything that happened in Lord of Light. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying Argo is the best movie, but um, it's interesting to know that that Lord of Light was the source material for the <laughs> science fiction movie that they were trying to make in, 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 um, in uh, Argo. And that whole story. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say Argo is a better movie than Lord of Light is, is 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 a book, but that's not really giving it that good of praise, I guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, that is interesting. That uh, that that was Lord of Light was the was the book. Um, I don't know if that ever translated into sales for the book. Uh, probably people would have been pretty disappointed. Uh, I, will, I will say one thing on um, Lord of Light's behalf, that I like the fact that it included, it included transgender characters, even though, once again, Zelazny really didn't do much with them. It occurred to me that the first um, relatively modern fantasy involving a transgender character was written by Lyman Frank Baum, the creator of the Oz books. Then some of the later Oz books, he had a boy named Tip become the Princess Ozma, and in Lord of Light, some of the characters are transgender, but it's only so that they can fulfill their uh, assigned roles in the Hindu pantheon. Uh, they can't have Brahma be female, for example, so uh, she has to go FTM for that role, but she's disappointed that uh, she uh, you know, can't, can't have the sort of text she really wants. Right. Well, you know, I, I, there are some interesting elements and moments in, in Lord of Light. I think for me, the most interesting thing or the thing that I would defend the book most on is, is this idea of like, is it valid to progress the, the people and how fast should religion be uh, and technology be given to these people or are they going to end up doing this to themselves again? which gets into themes that we talked about when we did uh, Miller's uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. And so I think these are important themes that the genre was definitely exploring at the time. And so, you know, I, I think in the end, my feeling is, is that Zelazny was doing something interesting and important with this book. It's just um, not for me. Just like I know Philip K. Dick is not for for all readers. Um, you know, I'm not saying everyone's going to get out of, out of, um, you know, reading Philip K. Dick, what I do. And I certainly don't Now, I had originally wanted my buddy even to come on here because he's an, a massive Roger Zelazny fan. He grew up in Serbia, just absolutely loving Zelazny is his favorite author loves the Amber books. Uh, but I just, uh, couldn't cross the get the times right uh, for this for him and he would definitely be defending him um, and I know the Amber books are really where he came into his own do you, I I was kind of turned off on reading Zelazny forever but I realize these are early works of his would, would you ever consider reading the, the Amber books Mark 
Or are you done with Zelazny after this experience? I don't know. I mean, I had vague memories of reading some of his stuff as uh, shorter pieces in the early 70s and liking them. I think partly that this was a very, you know, very much a book of its time, uh, you know, the kind of hippie mysticism and, you know, looking to India as a source of spiritual enlightenment and, um, you know, um, it just, you know, it seems to me very much uh, a work of its time that, uh, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, you mentioned Canical for Leibowitz uh, is not, is, is, you know, it is, it is something that holds up uh, right. for all time. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm sure there are some people, <laughs> I'm sure if we had more knowledge of Hinduism, that maybe maybe Zelazny is working on a level that's really, maybe he's doing something really mind-blowing. Uh, I know, for example, with my book, uh, Vegan Revolution with Zombies, if you're an animal rights activist, you're going to get more from it than you would just being a general reader. And I'm assuming that if the person reading this book knows about Hinduism, it, it, it would work better or <laughs> make more sense. And uh, in that regard, I kind of wish I found somebody who was very knowledgeable about that to, to do this with us. But, uh, but at the same time, a book has to function to a degree on a level that any reader can pick it up and read it. Otherwise, it's not working. And um, the fact that it didn't work for two serious science fiction readers, I think, really says something. Um, I don't know. Yeah, how do you yeah. feel about that, Mark? The idea that a book... Should it be able to reach everyone, or is it okay if a book doesn't connect to some readers? Uh, well, I can I can go either way on that. I mean, there are, you know there are people who write uh, or make music or uh, make movies that are very powerful for particular people, and uh, the mass audience is not going to get. There are some people who try to go for the mass audience and can't. You know, they they. You know, they just work on too creative or profound or just alienated a level. Um, I mean, I think Zelazny was, uh, the quote you read, that he was trying to bridge uh, the worlds of science fiction and fantasy and uh, create something that would uh, appeal to readers of both genres. Uh, I don't think he did that, but uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting try, I think. You know, the attempt to come together with that has become a lot more common now than it was then. So, uh, but then, you know, we were talking about Dune earlier, and Dune is a beautiful mixture of science fiction and fantasy. That's where the whole thing works. Uh, that it is, you know, it is Lord of the Rings, but it's also a space opera. Right. The last, you know, you know that really does seem to be have, have been beyond Zelazny's talents, or maybe his interests. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, bottom line for both these books, um, I'm going to give this immortal three out of five uh, vegan death rays. Um, but I, so I kind of liked this immortal a little bit more than I did Lord of Light. And, uh, you know, I think it's somewhat worth reading, but it doesn't hold it, it should not have won with Dune. It's ridiculous that it would for, forever be tied to a book that is incredibly superior. So, 
Uh, Mark, how would you rate and far more? You know, a, a book that attempted far more and achieved far more than uh, this immortal. Right. And, you know, Lord of Light, I mean, I was, you know, coming to it after the disappointment of this immortal, I'm like, my God, this is even more dated and more dull and, you know, more frustrating in the occasional flashes where he could have taken the story to much more interesting places than he actually did. Um. I'm going to give Lord of Light two out of five Hindu arms. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's really all I can. I don't really know what else to say about it. Um, did you? Uh, do you want to give a rating for both books, uh, Mark? S- starting with uh, this immortal. I, I think I, I think I'm fine with that. I'm you know not really big into rating systems, although once again I think we. Very unfair to Robert Heinlein when we gave him twos out of five. So, because uh, Heinlein's books, as many problems as they have with them, Stranger in a Strange Land and The Moon is a Harsh Mistress were both far more interesting, far more entertaining, far more readable, and far more professional than uh, either of Zelazny's books that we talked and about. And better discussion. And better discussion. Yeah, the, yeah. I, yeah, Heinlein had a lot of ideas, a lot of them were really dumb, but. At least you could talk about them. Zelazny is like, okay, what are you trying to say here? You know, with all your backward sentences, trying to make it sound like you're writing scripture. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know what this means, guys? We get to close out the 60s here for the Yugos. We're done. This is it. Uh, bye-bye, 60s. Uh, one thing about both of uh, Zelazny's books that we've talked about, Lord of Light even worse, is uh, how many different names he comes up for his characters. It's like, you know, towards the end of Lord of Light, there's a sentence where he actually gives all the central characters' names. It's like, well, it would have been nice if he'd done this earlier, so I would have known who you're actually talking about. Oh, I know. It was a total mess. It was an absolute mess. Like, who is Takagata? Um, oh, it's the same guy. Yeah, all respect to Zelazny and what he did. I'm sure the Amber books are far better. Um, I'm just not sure I'm going to find out, to be honest <laughs> with you. All right, uh, Mark Conlon, thank you for joining us. And, and thank you for uh, keep you it paranoid. Me.